This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. I'm just planning to ask you. I think we'll ask you a bunch of questions. About filth. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by my colleagues Sarah Cliff and a special guest star, Dara Lind. Hi, Dara. Ezra hey. is, is once again playing hooky. It's mysterious. Where is that guy? I don't know. What does he do all day? I don't know. But if you enjoy Ezra Klein content, you can see him live. Yes, soon. he will be there in person with Matt and I at Weeds Live, which is coming up next week on April 18th. We still have tickets. Um, you can get them at vox.com slash weeds live. We would love to see you there. And it'll be some exciting um, live podcasting. Yes, it's going to be amazing. But even more amazing in some ways will be this recorded and mass distributed podcast uh, that, that we, we are about to do. We got some uh, interesting research on, on preschool and, and public health. Um, we're going to talk about new developments in immigration enforcement policy. But we had a kind of interesting moment that this week where for it feels to me like the first time in a while that like dominant news story uh, was not something about like Donald Trump or yeah. weird tweets. So, so it felt a little quiet in D.C., but uh, on an airplane somewhere in the Midwest, things were getting pretty wild. Hot. Things were getting hot. Um, now, so we're, we're talking, of course, about uh, this this United flight, which had a, a passenger who was sitting in his seat and then was told he had to he had to leave to make room for crew members who were going to be uh sent to Kentucky instead he refused uh and was was dragged off by members of the Chicago police department who seemed to have roughed him up pretty badly i mean he's just bleeding from from his face and and of course in the modern world, I mean, what makes all the difference in these incidents is that you have people with little cell phone cameras and videos up on on Twitter. And so you have this combination of, you know, these like sort of shocking images. I mean, I, I've been in a lot of airports. I've never seen a, a guy get, you know, like roughed up by yeah. the cops. Um, but also something that like we've all experienced, which is being super annoyed at the airport. And, and it... it it managed to like bring together this sort of horrifying edge case with this everyday annoyance and people have been you know like fired up for days about yeah. united airlines but you wrote Matt, right about why like why this is able to happen in the airline industry like obviously there's just not like people hate the airline industry a lot and like i was hoping you could walk us through like your case for like what it is about the airline industry like the the, the wonky take on this news that lets this happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of ins and outs. If you think about industries that people hate, right? Airlines are high up there. Uh, cable companies are, are high up there. And what most of these kinds of hated industries have in common is very high fixed costs and very low variable costs, right? So wiring a neighborhood for Fios costs like a ton of money. Um, once you've done that, actually like, letting somebody watch TV is super cheap. Buying an airplane is incredibly expensive. Even flying an airplane from Chicago to Kentucky costs a lot of money. One passenger more or less makes almost no difference in, in the cost, right? So like a half-empty plane is not half as cheap to fly as a full plane. And 
that gives rise to industry practices that people do not like. It's hard to compete in those industries. Like, you can't just do a startup airline because it would cost a fortune. And it encourages the companies to play a lot of mind games with their customers, uh, which people don't like. And in the airline context, you know, one that lots of people uh, jump to is that if they can manage to sell more tickets than there are seats on the plane, uh, they'll usually go do that and just figure that in most cases, someone or other will not show up and it'll be fine, or you'll be able to you know, pay somebody off relatively cheaply to, to get them to go elsewhere. And this is the kind of thing that, like, if it ever happens to you, if, I, I don't know if you guys have ever been involuntarily bumped, but it happened to me once, and it's like the most outrageous thing. Like, you've paid money for a seat on the plane, and now you just can't get on. But even just to sit around, like, the plane is delayed because they're trying to find someone to take a $200 voucher, and you're like, like, what the fuck are you guys doing, right? Like, you, you, like regular businesses, you can't run that way, right? Like, if you sell somebody a car, you have to give them the car. And the airline industry doesn't doesn't work that way. And, and they have their reasons, but it's, like, infuriating. So I wonder if part of this doesn't have to do with the reason that airline customers are participating in the market, right? You kind of have two groups of people who buy seats on airplanes. One of them is people who are traveling for business a lot. They're repeat customers. They're used to the way that things work. If they get delayed or bumped, yeah, it's going to be kind of a pain in the butt, but it's something they understand to be part of their job. But because they're frequent customers, they're the ones who are less likely to get bumped from flights. And then you have the people who are occasional airline customers who are buying a plane ticket to do something they don't normally do and for which they probably have a good reason. And in those cases, those are both the people who are more likely to be bumped off planes because United doesn't need to make sure that someone who only flies three times a year uses their business. But they're also the people who feel like they have a good circumstantial case for being able to stay on the plane. I've noticed that even in cities that don't have, you know, super pushy pedestrians, people are really pushy in airports because everyone has somewhere they feel like they really need to be. So in this case, it kind of developed, you know, the the conversation around this doctor who got removed from the plane developed into this weird ethics question of like, is it worth it to allow a doctor who needs to be, you know, at the hospital tomorrow to stay on a plane and who has a more compelling moral case? And that's not obviously something that an airline is equipped to do <laughs> in making a calculation. But the people who are, you know, kind of stuck in these situations feel like they are doing something special and necessary and that that is being withheld from them. You know, I, that's a great point, right? The the internal class structure of the airplane <laughs> is an unusual circumstance, right? Because normally, you know, you might sell different products to different people, but it'll be literally separated out, right? Like someone gets the nice car, somebody gets the cheap car. But on the plane, right, you're all on this one metal tube. But you have some people who are like seated up front in the first class, some people in the economy in the back. And even within the economy class, though, there's these fine gradations of the different status. And and I, I mean, I've experienced recently, before I, I, I had a kid, I used to travel a lot. And I would, I, I really enjoy traveling. And so I would like, eagerly volunteer to, you know, go like do a talk in Murfreesboro, Tennessee and get $250, but also just rack up more airline miles. And I had my, you know, whatever Star Alliance status. And so this stuff never bothered me because I was immune 
as a high status flyer, I was immune to any kind of bumping. But also I was often, as you were saying, sort of doing things for no reason, right? I mean, if I was writing for for Slate and working remotely and doing a talk, if I could swing a travel voucher and a night in a hotel to come back the next day, you know, sometimes I would I would just take it, right? Because yeah. like, who cares? Um, now, if I'm traveling, it's usually with a toddler. It's typically to, you know, like see family, do some kind of special event. And it's like, the stakes are way higher, but my value to the airline has completely collapsed because I'm now just like, you know, the unwashed masses with the regular tickets. And it's a much more, it, it's like inverted, right? Like it seems like it would be so much better to like boot the like callow 20-something doing work trips for no reason than like the family, uh, you know, trying desperately to make it to a wedding. Uh, but like that's not. That's not the business. But isn't logic. that how the vouchers should work, right? Because like your twenty-year-old self is going to be a lot more willing to take it than your current like dad self. Yes, with a toddler. I mean, I, we're I, talking guys about the vouchers, not the involuntary, right? Bumping. Well, but the reason that the involuntary bumping happened was because they didn't have a taker on a voucher level that, as far as we know, like. I've seen reported a few places, including in your pieces, that there's a statutory cap on how much yeah. airlines can offer. It was something like 1350 but they were way below that. They weren't, right. they decided that, the that it was better to kind of bump people. That was a little bit But baffling. also, the voucher economy itself has become a little bit dysfunctional, right? So the airlines, you know, they, they give you these vouchers, or they say they're going to, and you then find that it's a lot harder in practice to redeem them than you might think. It's not even like a gift certificate that you can just go use. There's like weird blackout dates, things like that. And once people start to hear from friends that, oh, no, these vouchers are bad, you can get a systematic collapse in the system because people maybe don't remember, oh, I heard specifically that the Delta vouchers were bad, but the American vouchers are more generous. There's something called uh, Gresham's Law in economics that, that bad money drives out good. And so it's like once you put this debased vouchers out there in the system. Everybody doesn't want vouchers, so you want to devalue your own vouchers. And I mean, I I don't know how much that played in exactly this situation, but the airlines, I think, would probably collectively be better off if there was a rule that they actually had to offer people hard cash compensation. Because in any given moment, it's sort of in your incentive to cheat. But because airlines have good reason to want to overbook, they should want to have a good way to get volunteers off and sort of guaranteeing that you're going to get real money and meaningful compensation. Well, one help. of the other things going on that is going to be like some long-term discounting, right? Because like I could use that cash right now. Like if United, right. I was on a flight on Friday going to a conference that was overbooked on United and they were offering a $400 voucher. and. I think it would have been different, like $400 cash that I could have like gone and done something fun in D.C. and then like left the next day. But with the, you know, vouchers, I think it's both the combination of not knowing like when I'll be able to use them, like dumb blackout dates. But also like I don't really know when my next trip is. I don't know if United will have like a good fare. Like there's so much right. uncertainty. And, and, you know, short term, it's, of course, good for United if they can pay people off in vouchers they forget about. But long term you know, they're better off if they can get people off the planes. It's worth saying that in this particular case, it wasn't an overbooking. I guess the flight was sold out, but the issue was that they decided they had to get some crew members onto the plane uh, because they needed them in position uh, in, in Kentucky. 
And it's is worth saying here that the sort of broad context of this is that running an airline is hard, right? Um, you can't just waste money by having tons and tons and tons of extra airplanes and highly trained pilots and an airline crew just laying around everywhere. You have to serve or you want to serve some smaller cities like Louisville that you're just necessarily not going to have that many flights into Louisville from anywhere in particular. And you have to deal with the weather. You have to deal with accidents. You have to deal with crowding in the airspace. So sometimes stuff happens. And it seems like United had a, a rough weekend in which they had some flights canceled. So they had to rebook people. So they wound up with a lot of overbooking. And they wound up with some of their crew not in position. And you've got to get these four people to Louisville, or else you're going to have to cancel a whole flight. And inconvenience way, way, way more than four people. Uh, so they obviously did not handle this well, as I think their CEO eventually came around to. But it's a legitimately difficult enterprise, right? And there's a certain amount of time pressure in, in the nature of a, an airline network. You need to get people not just to where they're going, but you need to at least try to get them where they're going so that they can get on new planes. Well, and I learned there's other things going on. I learned once from an airline engineer, someone who does not the actual like mechanical engineering, but the time engineering. You're also getting charged for the amount of time your plane is on the tarmac. So right. you're trying to minimize the amount of time your planes are on the ground and it just gets like real difficult. Like there's a whole area of, um, you know, engineering around how to schedule flights and like how to make this really complex thing actually work. Right. Which is why the question, you know, for me kind of becomes, obviously there are ways in which everyone can agree United has handled this very poorly, but what was actually being filmed was not the behavior of United employees. It was the behavior of Chicago police department employees. And, you know, it's, as someone who's, you know, done a little work on police dealing with difficult situations and de-escalation, you know, that was pretty far afield of what any officer is taught in the academy that is the appropriate level of force to use for someone who's passively resisting. But in those cases, they're being taught that the primary, you know, the primary goal of the interaction is to keep everyone safe. In that case, Chicago PD was being called in not to keep everyone safe, but to get the plane off the ground quickly. It was being called in essentially in the service of, you know, not just United's business objectives, but also kind of the broader efficiency and safety of everyone else on the plane. And that's not something that public safety is usually considered to include. And it created this weird, distorted situation where an inappropriate level of force was necessary for this goal that police aren't usually supposed to be helping accomplish. And it's worth saying, I mean, it, it did not go quite as viral as some of these airplane videos, but there was like a big Justice Department report on the Chicago Police Department's practices that I would say found that there was a pattern of misbehavior on a, on a variety of, of levels. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth saying that while de-escalation models are common in police academy training, uh, many departments take a relatively lackadaisical attitude to what they actually expect officers to do in the field because there's this baseline assumption that if you are an officer on the beat, that you know what's best to keep yourself safe and that that's the most important thing more so than the safety of anyone you might be dealing with. And something that's interesting, right, is that outside of a fairly narrowly circumscribed set of situations, most Americans in most circumstances are just fairly compliant people. 
And it is relatively rare that we actually put to the test the like invisible bounds of contract law and legality, right? So like, what would happen if I went to Panera and just sat down and didn't order anything and refused to leave when I was asked? Like, I don't, I don't know, you know, because I've never done that. And because nobody does that exactly. And people are not really trained to deal with those kinds of situations because they, they don't happen. Uh, stuff happens at airports, you know, all the time, but not this. You would expect, I'm sure, what the staff on the plane thought was going to happen when they told this guy he had to leave was that he was going to leave and that he was probably going to argue with them and be kind of mad, but that there was no question of, like, how are we going to force him to leave the plane? Because most people are just, like, they do what they're told, and we don't, we don't like, really try to see, well, how are we going to enforce the property rights that United has over this airplane? Because it just, it just doesn't come up. I mean, on another level, though, you could say that a lot of the reason that people are so frustrated with the airport experience right now in general is that since 9-11, airports have been the one place that middle-class white people have to deal with the kind of everyday surveillance and inconveniences that, you know, people who are constantly surveillanced in over-policed communities deal with every day. So I think that that's, that's another angle on which this was kind of ready to set fire is there's a an indignity that a lot of Americans feel when they go through an airport that they don't have to feel the rest of the time. And that's a point that, you know, many people made in conjunction with this, that it's not necessarily, you know, like you said, it's not the first time the Chicago Police Department has used excessive force on someone. It's not the first time that someone simply for refusing to comply with an order has been treated as an imminent public safety threat. But right. I mean, it's this is like when middle class white people slip into like stop and frisk territory is when you enter an airport. Well, and almost you're feeling like a little more entitled because you've paid, you know, hundreds of dollars to enter this place. Right. So you've like you've put down like Dara was like, you want to go somewhere. You've actually like spent a lot of money to be in this circumstance. And I think like it's the combination of like what you're mentioning and the fact that like you you feel like you're in this like privileged club, but it's also a club that's like a terrible place to be. Right. It's, right. it's the world's pro- worst club. It's the world's right? worst club that you paid hundreds of dollars to enter. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. But it's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. Speaking of the world's worst club. pervasive surveillance. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, uh, so, you know, while we have you here, Dara, I mean, I think, you know, we should talk about immigration enforcement under Trump. I think the political class has spent a lot of time focused on stuff Trump has not been able to get done. But the sort of objective circumstances for a president who wants to have harsher immigration enforcement and immigration enforcement agencies who have been agitating uh, for harsher immigration enforcement is, you know, it's like the downhill, downhill running of, of, of the policymaking world. And and things are things are really happening. Right, right. I mean, the thing is that just to reiterate, you do not need legislation to be harsher on unauthorized immigrants. The the other kind of analogous policy on which the Trump administration really has been moving forward aggressively is uh, restricting oversight of police departments, which is something else that they don't need legislative authority for because they already have you know executive branch power. Uh, you do at some point need funding. The immigration enforcement agencies are kind of rapidly running out of money and the extent to which supplemental funding for those is going to be included in the, you know, next government funding bill is kind of percolating as an issue. But it doesn't take a whole lot for both the Department of Homeland Security, which does the kind of frontline immigration enforcement, both at the border and in the interior, and the Department of Justice, who is both responsible for running immigration courts, which is where people go through, you know, in the process of getting deported in most cases, and can use you know, federal criminal courts to prosecute unauthorized immigrants. So both of those are really stepping up over the last few weeks, um, both kind of from top-down directives. Attorney General Jeff Sessions released a memo yesterday that instructed all U.S. attorneys to make a point of prosecuting people for illegal entry and reentry and to come up with a plan for, you know, putting misdemeanor prosecutions on first-time illegal entrants so that they could be charged with felonies later on, as well as a bunch of other immigration-related crimes that were essentially use all the tools in your toolbox to go after people for being unauthorized in federal so court. What is the like what what is the point of that? Right. Like what what is the so you're caught up in some situation you're not here legally. You're in the system. Like, what is the, like, cash value of prosecuting you for a crime versus whatever else might happen? So the fundamental problem with removing, like, 11 million unauthorized people from the country is immigration courts have a massive backlog. If you have not previously been deported from the U.S. and you aren't caught within a certain distance from the border, or you are caught within that distance, but you've been living here for several years, you have the right to an immigration court hearing before you're deported. And that means that over the last several years, because Congress realized Congress wanted to put more funding toward immigration enforcement, so it put it toward DHS. It didn't put it toward DOJ where the immigration courts were. And so over the entire Obama administration, the court backlog went from a year, a year and a half to like two and a half years. And so the, if you nab a longtime resident in Chicago. Right. That's two and a half years that they are either going to be out in the community where in theory they could abscond and not show up for their hearings, or that's two and a half years that you have to keep them in detention, which gets extremely expensive, right. you know, even if you're cutting costs by putting them in prison. But even facilities. the Obama administration was trying to speed this up to some level, right? They, they put a little bit of, they wanted to put money toward it and they couldn't get a ton of funding from Congress. There are a lot of openings for immigration judges right now. The other thing that the Obama administration faced was that 
in 2014, and then again to a lesser extent in 2015 and 2016, you had all these Central American children and families coming in who, even though they were coming in for the first time because they had asylum claims, many of them also had to go through immigration court hearings before being deported. So they had to shift a bunch of resources to these unaccompanied children and families if they were going to get them out quickly, which they decided was necessary to kind of deter future people from coming in. Okay, so you have the backlog. Right, right. So that's kind of the big rock that needs to either get, you know, kind of pulverized by hiring more immigration judges, telling them that they can't be very generous in giving people continuances, telling them to be super strict in not giving anyone relief, or you can root around it, right? And one of the ways of rooting around it is by expanding the, you know, the exception, the like, oh, you're not entitled to an immigration court hearing. And there should be regulations coming down soon about that. Uh, Some people are worried that it's going to allow anyone who gets caught anywhere in the U.S. to, if they can't prove they've been here for a couple of years, to get deported without a hearing. We don't know for sure that's what's going to happen, but that's kind of the rumor that's been going around. Another way to get around it is to use federal criminal court, which is not as backlogged as immigration courts generally, and charge and convict you of a crime. And then once you've been convicted of a crime, you are, you know, it it is much more easy to just kind of ship you through immigration court in in a jail or prison and deport you. Dara, you wrote a piece I really liked um, a few weeks ago about the climate in Hispanic communities in Austin, where you wrote about just like the sense of fear, the scare about checkpoints, which it sounds like may or may not exist. And I mean, one of the things that made me think about is how even without policy change, you can actually really change people's lives just with like the climate and the rhetoric. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about kind of like what's going on in the communities that you report on and like how this like, it sounds like there wasn't any policy change, but people's lives are changing just because of what they're hearing, or at least in that particular yeah, scenario. I mean, I feel like the the kind of um, the link between that and what we've been talking about is a piece that I wrote this week on arrests at courthouses where a lot of immigrants, whether they're there for, to show up because they've been charged with a crime or they're there to testify as a witness or going in to like get a restraining order against a domestic abuser. In several high profile cases, ICE agents have been waiting for them and have caught them when they're going to, for their day in court. And so that's created an effect where immigrants don't want to go get restraining orders. They're refusing to cooperate with police and criminal investigations because the fear of ICE being there is pervasive, even if the actual arrests, you know, even if there have only been a few dozen arrests at courthouses, any given interaction at a courthouse could become an interaction with ICE. And that's kind of the dynamic. Um, There, you know, there are particular rumors like checkpoints. But what's really behind those rumors is ICE isn't engaging in these indiscriminate sweeps. They're not rounding up entire apartment complexes full of immigrants. They are tweaking their rules of engagement, so to speak, so that there are cases in which someone they're not targeting can get picked up. But for the most part, they are still targeting individual people who either have a criminal record or who have been ordered removed in the past. Those are still super sympathetic cases. In many cases, often they're people who have been here for 20 years, who have children, who if they have a criminal record, it was a DUI from 20 years ago. But they do fit particular criteria. I have not seen any cases of ICE going after someone who has no prior order and no criminal record, et cetera, et cetera. But 
their rhetoric is that anyone who has done anything criminal, which includes entering the U.S. illegally or using a fake social security number, is removable and is a priority. So even if in practice it's unlikely that ICE is knocking on your door, you can't actually say that they're not going to. You can't say that if they do that you'll have any way to fight back. So what's happening is there have been really pervasive reports of ICE roadside checkpoints, and there haven't been any examples of them. You know, there are these fears of these But the, the idea raids. of an ICE roadside checkpoint is like literally you drive by and like everyone is getting stopped as right. they go right. somewhere. Right. The, what it looks like has happened is that ICE has started kind of pulling people that they've targeted over on the side of the road rather than confronting them in their homes. And people have seen those and assumed that there's a roadside checkpoint going on. So, you know, these rumors can escalate with extreme rapidity in the age of social media. They're very hard to tamp down because it's extremely hard to prove a negative. And advocates are often in the position of trying to give people information by saying, no, these things that you're saying are happening aren't happening. But at the same time, the advocates can't tell people, no, it's irrational to be afraid because it is perfectly rational. And so any kind of fear or paranoia that's leading people to, in the most extreme cases, you know, refuse to leave their homes, refuse to allow their children to go to school, refuse to go to court, you know, even to pursue justice. That is very hard to externally, you know, remove. It's not something that can be removed in the current policy climate. And ICE is at best indifferent right now to these chilling Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a real case where, you know, a lot of the sort of like lol Trump stuff, like, the shoe is on the other foot, like precisely because the administration does not communicate clearly, precisely because Trump is not trustworthy, does not like follow through on commitments in a clear way, speaks very broadly and loosely about different kinds of things. People are not sure that they understand what the the rules are, right, that 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 they are creating a climate of uncertainty and doubt that is out there where rumors are flying around. There is not a lot of credible clarifications from leadership anywhere about what's happening. And, you know, I've spoken to people who, you know, are are refusing to leave their homes. And I get the sense that it, it's true that the people doing that are probably being more paranoid than they need to be. But it's also true that the authorities in Washington are not upset that that is happening. Right. That right. if that leads a certain number of... There, there are cases that would be hard to deport, right? People who are basically law-abiding, who are integrated with, with U.S. citizen families, things like that. But if you can drive them into a level of fear and despair that causes some of them to consider voluntarily heading back to Mexico, that's like a win for, you know, the, like, Jeff Sessions gave this speech yesterday that attracted a lot of attention because of one particular rhetorical flourish, but he he's talking about criminals. He's talking about MS-13. He's talking about beheadings, but he's also given lots of speeches that are just like, there's people here working as roofers, and that's bad for America to have a guy from Mexico work as a roofer. It doesn't worry Jeff Sessions if foreigners of any class or any occupation or, or any 
type are just like, wow, America's scary. I don't want to be there. Like he thinks foreigners are scary and they shouldn't be here. And that's a very different leadership attitude from what we had in the in the recent past. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that. There's also, I mean, the unauthorized immigrant community learned under the Obama administration that what people in Washington are saying is happening isn't necessarily what's actually happening on the ground and that they can't use, well, but the president said this wouldn't happen as an actual defense in court. And just like, you know, Jeff Sessions, as a matter of ideology, believes it's an affirmatively good thing if immigrants aren't sending their children to public schools because he doesn't believe that they have the, you know, that they ought to be using public resources anyway. Many of the ICE field agents believe that the power to arbitrarily select people for deportation is a very important deterrent aspect, that people should not feel secure in the United States without papers. And so even if in practice many of the cases that they're going after are, you know, pre-selected and targeted, the ability to make anyone feel that they could be deported at any time, they see as a very important law enforcement capability that was taken away from them under Obama and has since been restored. One of the things I've realized in the past few months of covering Trump is what a powerful policy uncertainty can be. And I think this is across a lot of areas because Trump came in as someone we didn't really expect. We don't fully know what he's going to do. You know, the beat I cover the most, healthcare. There's a lot of uncertainty. Like, do they want to make this explode or not? And uncertainty is not the same as not making policy decisions. It's like the decision to not be clear about what you're doing, the decision to issue confusing statements, which I run into all the time on my beat, that changes behavior. It's different than, um, you know, just not making a policy decision, like actually sowing uncertainty. And it sounds like that's a lot of what's going on here, that it's essentially using uncertainty as a policymaking tool. So, well, you know, maybe there's some stuff you can't change through Congress, because that's really hard, there's a heck of a lot you can do by making people feel very unsure about what your policy actually is. And that changes how people plan when they they don't have certainty about, you know, what to expect in the next few years. That it really is, you know, I, it's something I didn't really understand as much during the Obama administration, but has become more clear to me, like how much uncertainty can be used to induce certain, to induce outcomes that you don't have the power to create through legislation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that the broad theory of this, as Matt alluded to, is that a certain critical mass of people will become so miserable that they'll leave. And we do not have evidence that that actually works. Um, The cases in which it's been tried, either got struck down by the courts or succeeded in making people absolutely miserable, may or may not have succeeded in them leaving. And even if they did, they left to other states. They didn't necessarily leave the U.S. So, On that level, this is an untested at best policy. On the level of does it succeed in making people suffer who maybe you don't believe should be able to take part in public life, it's absolutely successful. And some of what this this has reminded me of was back in Alabama in 2011, a law that had the same kind of characteristics as the Arizona law that everyone focused on in 2010 actually went into effect. And it actually went even a little further than the Arizona law. And the effects were just on public school enrollment were massive, on public health clinics were massive. There is a certain unsewing from public life that happens to unauthorized immigrants themselves and to kind of the U.S. citizens who are their children, the other people in their communities who are worried about people getting found out, that is a, it is a way in which immigration enforcement works. 
The question is whether that is a desirable outcome, even for the people who think that unauthorized immigrants should have no right to, you know, any kind of public schooling or health or any of that, if they have U.S. citizen children. And if, even should those parents be deported, the children are going to remain in the country, what good does it do to the population to have had several years of U.S. citizen children not being allowed to participate in these public institutions? And, you know, I mean, the other just sort of, I would say, a broad thing that we're seeing across the Trump years is that Institutional culture in agencies matters a lot, um, particularly when you have the somewhat confusing, you know, high level policy process. And that it's not always obvious. You know, you you need to you need to know these things. But like there are certain financial regulatory agencies out there that when Obama was president, people from the Treasury Department spent a lot of time kind of like walking across the street and being, you know, like, hey, guys, what's up? Like. Let's like let's find some cases. And they were kind of sort of compliance culture in, in the agency where what they want to do is see people are filing their forms, see if the forms are OK, stamp them, go out the door. ICE is evidently not like that. The, the people who work in that agency would like to believe that enforcing immigration law is incredibly important and really, really good, and that they really want to go out there and do it, you know, like with a lot of gusto. And when the Obama administration, I mean, Obama was projecting the attitude, I would say pretty clearly, that catching and deporting illegal immigrants per se was not a super important thing for him personally. He did not value it. He did not think that the people guarding our uh, workplaces from undocumented nannies were like the real heroes of the Republic. So he wanted to get these guys with guns and jails and handcuffs and use them to catch uh, criminals who he regarded as a serious problem. And there was a constant tension between what he would say he wanted them to do, what the letter of the law was, and what they themselves wanted to do. And I think tension is an understatement there. There was <laughs> less than two years after Obama came into office, the ICE agents union filed a motion of no confidence against his director, and it only got worse from there. Right. And they and they they campaigned very vocally for Trump specifically. And and it's interesting. It's actually a little unusual in the federal government to have an agency whose staff is quite so vocal and so gung ho about the agency's mission. Um, you, you're seeing a little of it in the opposite direction in, in the EPA versus Scott Pruitt. The people who sign up there, like they really believe in the environment. They believe in environmental regulation. Uh, they don't want to be kind of handcuffed, but it's a key part of this story, right? If if the issue was that Trump had to like mobilize a kind of indifferent force or a group of people who you you could imagine a group of people who really liked Obama's rhetorical policy, who were like, this is great. We've been promoted off this like dumb immigration beat. And like now we're going after the worst of the worst and, and violent offenders. But like that's just it's not how they see it. And it's it's always struck me as odd a little bit that, like, the federal government has these, like, offense-specific law enforcement 
agencies. Like in a city police department, you can just say, like, we're going to shift people onto the homicide cases. And you can't really do that in the federal government. This is why the really interesting case is going to be the what happens at U.S. attorney's offices, because U.S. attorney's offices have traditionally not only can the people easily be shifted from one type of crime to another, but they have traditionally had a lot more autonomy because they're not themselves, you know, the federal government can direct people who are at DOJ headquarters in D.C. to prosecute particular crimes, but U.S. attorneys are supposed to have a lot more autonomy in which crimes in their jurisdictions they prosecute. And the last time that, you know, D.C. tried to pull a power play on U.S. attorneys was under the Bush administration, and that went very badly for them politically. So it's going to be very interesting to see how these U.S. attorneys' offices that don't have that same, you know, institutional directive, you know, orientation toward really wanting to catch unauthorized immigrants— how much compliance there is and where and what Attorney General Sessions does if it turns out that the, you know, Western District of Illinois or whatever is not super keen on spending all its time going after illegal reentry cases. And it'll be interesting to see who they pick, right? I mean, we have not actually seen many of these jobs filled, right? But this is a role where traditionally, I mean, a, a lot of people have have come through U.S. attorney posts and gone on to, like, bigger and better things. And, you know, you normally think of an ambitious person in that kind of role as seeking, you know, certain kinds of publicity. And, you know, that would normally mean you want to prosecute a terrorism case. You want to make a major organized crime case, a political corruption case. To say, oh, I, like, got this grandma sent home and I got a ton of grandmas sent home. It's like, it's not, I mean, it depends on the state. It depends how politics evolves. But at least traditionally, I think it has not been the mentality of a typical U.S. attorney's office that working as a sort of end run around an immigration court backlog is the way you are going to, uh, like, be the next James Comey. Right. Or or whoever else, uh, you, you know, um, Janet Napolitano was a U.S. attorney and became governor of Arizona. And it just it seems like in most cases, right, those institutions are going to want to aim for like more noteworthy, like higher fruit. I took on something big. Um, but on the other hand, Sessions, compared to a lot of the other Trumpies, is like a knowledgeable veteran of American politics who I am willing to believe has given some thought to this kind of question and, you know, will pick people in a sensible way. You read some of, like, you know, Steve Bannon or Gary Cohn antics and, like, I don't really know. Um, but, like, Jeff, Jeff Sessions has been in D.C. a long time, like, longer than us. And um, if he really wants to get people sent home, I, I feel like he he may make it happen. Hello, listeners of The Weeds. I'm Peter Kafka. I work for Fox Media, and I have a podcast of my own. It's called Recode Media with Peter Kafka. If you like The Weeds, I think you like listening to the stuff I do as well. I've got an episode for you to try out. It's with NYU professor Jay Rosen. We did this literally on the eve of the Trump presidency. We talked all about how the media should respond to Trump. Jay Rosen had what's now a famous idea. He suggested we stop talking to Kellyanne Conway. Things sort of blew up from there, and I think that's now my most popular podcast. Go listen to it yourself. You can go find it wherever you find fine podcasts. I will see you there. Let's talk about a white paper, another yeah. NBER paper. So this is a trio of researchers from New York University, Kay Hong, Casey Dragan, and Sherry Cleed, 
Um, and they have a really interesting paper that's trying to answer this question um, in research of why pre-K seems to have a pretty significant effect on long-term outcomes. And we've seen this in a lot of studies, kind of lifelong economic health benefits from attending pre-K, and they're trying to get to the bottom of what actually is the mechanism there. And they kind of stumble on this unique situation where New York in 2014, they made all four-year-old children eligible for pre-K in the city so they could look at the kids who um, were right before and after the cutoff and see if there's any difference between those two groups. And the thing that they find is that there's really important um, health interventions happening in that year, that the kids who are in the universal pre-K program, they are more likely to be diagnosed or treated with asthma and vision problems. So to get glasses, to get inhalers. Um, one of the kind of interesting things they also look at is if there's any kind of negatives to being in pre-K. You think of being in a class full of, um, you know, little toddlers, disease abounds, but um, no increase in infectious diseases, injuries, or doctor trips. And they also kind of look at first grade. Well, you know, one theory could be, yeah, these things get caught in pre-K, but maybe, you know, eventually they just catch up by first grade. And it doesn't turn out to be true. It seems like some of those diagnoses that are being made quite early, that there isn't a catch-up effect. It's not like they would have just been caught another year later. And, you know, they also make the case here that even if it was a year later, these are really important developmental years to not be able to see, for example, in pre-K is pretty damaging to learning anything. So I thought this was, you know, I've read a lot of the research on early education and how it's effective. And I like this particular paper in that it really pinpointed some of the actual tangible things that might be changing there. A lot of this seems to not necessarily be about pre-K itself and what kids are learning, but more of getting into a system where people are going to catch these things and a system, they're looking at Medicaid claims. So a system of healthcare and, and having access to this kind of treatment that parents just, you know, for whatever reason, were not actually bringing proactively to the doctor. But once they're in a classroom with a teacher noticing this, these problems were suddenly getting some level of treatment. I thought it was a little weird that they pitched it as like, oh, we have found the explanation of why pre-K has long-term benefits rather than just we found that pre-K has these health benefits, which seems like a more defensible claim. um, Go big with your your NBER claims. (laughs) Well, I mean, precisely because this New York pre-K system is new, we don't actually know whether there are long-term educational benefits of this pre-K expansion. uh, And it will take us a long time to find evidence on that. And it seems like just as both a factual claim and as a political intervention in New York City, what's interesting about this is that they have found that there is a clear short-term health benefit to this new thing, which is maybe a good reason to keep doing it. And it'll have to have been in effect for more than two years before we can see if there's a long-term educational gain because, you know, I mean, the kids have to grow up. Um, But it's like, it's nice to see that something good is is being accomplished. I mean, the thing about this study is because it was looking, instead of using direct enrollment data, it you know, looked at the Medicaid rules. And of course, given what we were talking about in the previous segment and what I've been thinking about in the last couple of months, the the kind of obvious question for me is, to what extent is this a reflection of universal pre-K targeting the kind of people who are already in the system, right? The fact that they didn't find 
you know, an increase in Medicaid usage generally indicates maybe that that while universal pre-K is a good way to kind of catch children into a system and catch particular maladies earlier, it may not necessarily be functioning as a way for families that maybe have these existing social benefits that they aren't aware of uh, becoming aware of pre-K because school is something that everyone is super aware children need to go through and kind of getting picked up in the system that way, which like, yes, that's not the selling point of universal pre-K, but given that a lot of the, you know, one of the big questions in any social program is eligible people who aren't using it, it, you know, it's an interesting data point to have, especially in a context in which there might be very good reasons that some, you know, that maybe not during the lifespan of this study, which was kind of toward the end of the Obama administration when unauthorized immigrants felt a little more secure, but it's entirely plausible that New York could see a decrease in universal pre-K mm-hmm. enrollment in 2017. It's plausible that absenteeism will be higher, that kind of thing. And the ways in which these benefits pile on to each other just helps create a disparity when someone isn't being fed into the system to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's always, like you said, it's always been a struggle with social programs is getting everyone signed up. I think with Medicaid, gosh, I don't know the exact number, but there's a really significant portion of people who are eligible for Medicaid benefits. And for whatever reason, um, in some places, states make it hard to sign up. And that's one of the reasons they're enrolled. I don't think New York is one of those places. New York has a very active Medicaid program. They seem to want people to enroll it versus states that have really complex paperwork to actually sign up. But I think that is one of the things this, you know, it's, it's hard for this study to get around and they do have some controls around it is the fact that the people, while this is universal access to pre-K, it is not universal enrollment in pre-K. It's not saying, you know, in the way the rest of elementary school is where all kids are generally getting signed up, that this is something you have to volunteer your kid into that you could be seeing some of those differences show up between the parents who are volunteering their kids into pre-K and and the ones who who are not making that decision. Yeah, although, I mean, pre-K enrollment is a little bit different from Medicaid enrollment in the sense that there's nobody who is, like, unaware of the fact that their four-year-old has to be like somewhere, <laughs> right? I, I mean, so, you know, one of or the things... have a way of making I, themselves I mean, well, known. I mean, so one of the things you see with Medicaid, right, is that low-income families who are not signed up for Medicaid, who develop an acute medical problem, end up in the emergency room, and the hospital staff, which, like, would like to be paid, is then like, okay, well, we, we've got to go get you in this, right? But, like, childcare is like a daily medical emergency where, like, so you, you have to do something. So, I I mean, there's, there's a fair amount of people who don't take up these kind of uh, free preschool offers. But at least my understanding is that it's normally, like, high-end mm-hmm. opter-outers, right. you know, who have something they're paying for privately that that they think is, yeah. is but better. I think there's also some low-end opting out. I'm involved in a tutoring program here in D.C., and we work with a lot of low-income families. And one of the things I notice is just the logistics of getting your kid there yeah. mm-hmm. is a big hurdle to actually, like, enrolling in a regular program. So it is true it's free daycare, but you also have to, like, get your kid there and, like, make sure they're there at a specific time. And at least in the program I'm involved in, a lot of kids end up dropping out because they're parents of other places to be. They can't commit to like being there to right, drop to the them schedule. off, pick them up. So I think that is like one of the, my guess, this is not supported by data, but is that you have like some like low end and some high income drop off. And yeah, the high I mean, income I'm, people you probably don't need to worry about. It's more of the people who can't 
kind of commit to that regular right. no, the, right. the scheduling stuff issue going on. Sense. Which is why one of the other threads that they didn't really pick up on in this study, but kind of alluded to in the literature that was interesting to me was the kind of social and behavioral negative effects that have been reported in some cases of pre-K programs. And, you know, it seems to me that that's largely a function of, well, what's the alternative, right? If you have kids who, because their parents can't afford to take them to daycare, just shoving them with the other neighborhood kids, and the alternative is this universal pre-K program that appears by all accounts to be very high quality, class sizes are capped, you know, teachers appear to be well-trained, that they're modeling positive social interaction, it's totally plausible that in other cases, you know, kids, the alternative isn't going to be that kids are just being, like, allowed to run around on their own devices and bully each other. And if you just kind of shove them into an overcrowded pre-K classroom, that that behavior might happen and that you might actually have, you know, a a poorly supervised pre-K might be more likely to give kids bad ideas about how they're supposed to interact with their peers. It was reassuring there's not an uptick in injuries in this study. I think that yeah. might scare some parents off from a pre-K well, I mean, program. I mean, I, if you, if longtime Weeds listeners will remember when we, we looked at the studies of the Quebec uh, preschool expansion. It's a deep cut. Where they went, um, they went very big, very rapidly, tried not to spend too much money and appear to have sucked a lot of sort of middle class kids into a fairly low quality, like publicly provided uh, system, which had some some I mean, it ha- the, the goal of that program was to increase women's labor force participation and it succeeded in achieving that goal. But it turned out to have uh, developmental um, side effects that were that were not as positive. Uh, the New York pre-K program is much more like child focused as as i understand it and you know seems to be achieving more of those those kind of goals um but of course it it costs a lot more money to closely supervise tiny children because it, it turns out they're they're wild they're like yeah. wild they're like wild beasts yeah well but at least they get their vision checked yeah have to get their asthma under control at least so they can run around and be wild beasts uh yeah i don't know about that um but yeah Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dara, for, for joining us and Thanks, uh, helping, helping us out with the with the immigration. If you want even more weeds, if this just wasn't enough, you want to continue the conversation, we have a great new Facebook group that is growing rapidly. I think we're at about 2,500 members. It's really great. It's a great conversation of nerdy policy details. Um, we've been sharing some of the books we're reading in there. Um, we're giving away free tickets to Weeds Live. Um, there's a raffle you can fill out right now. So go ahead and enter that. You can find all of this at vox.com slash weeds live. There is a link to our Facebook group. You can also find out more about the show. But if you're interested in getting involved in our Facebook group, and I think it's a really great community. Um, 99% of internet comments are garbage, but I think this is the the 1% of good discussion on the internet. It is vox.com slash weeds live. And we would love to have more of our listeners in there. Last, but, but by no means least, uh, if, if you are just all weeds to out with the Facebook group, the live show, et cetera. You might want to check out Vox's other podcast, uh, A Change of Pace, Todd Vanderwerf's I Think You're Interesting. Uh, it's all about uh, the biggest creators in entertainment and pop culture. It's a fascinating lesson. Uh, you will enjoy it. Uh, so so um, check it out. And thanks to our producers, Peter Leonard and Bert Pinkerton. We will see you next week. <laughs>